live from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. And our phone number, if you want to join us, 866-505-4626. That's our legacy line, or you can use uh, the uh, direct line, 833-4-VALDEZ. And I want to jump into a couple of things. Uh, Number one, today is National Forgiveness Day, which is pretty cool, Um, considering so many of us don't forgive. We're very unforgiving. I try to be forgiving, but I also fail in that regard. But something that I feel is unforgivable is the border crisis. We've got the border crisis, and um, there's a piece that I was just reading in the Daily Wire. And uh, the headline, latest apprehension data blows massive hole in Biden's border narrative. So the apprehensions of illegal immigrants surged from 132,000, uh, 132,652, so just over 132,000 in July to more than 177,000 in August. And that's uh, reported by the Washington Post. The, the figure indicates that illegal border crossing attempts have consistently and substantially increased month over month since June. Now, I know some of you are thinking that, well, that's good if we're uh, apprehending people. This is great. And the problem is, as we apprehend these people, we're releasing them into the interior of the country. These aren't deportations. This is just corralling people. We get these people and then we release them into the country. Uh, So in June, 99,539. So this number is going up and up and up. The preliminary data reported by the Post in in, uh, August, 91,000 who were categorized as part of a family unit. That broke the record, previous record, of 84,000 in May of 2019. So these recent figures come as the White House press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, she claims that the Biden administration is stopping the flow at the border. What flow? The flow of what? The law? So I want you to hear Karine Jean-Pierre. The first day of his administration, he put forth a comprehensive immigration piece of legislation. The first piece of legislation in his in his tenure as president was that. And he took it incredibly seriously and wanted to put forth a path to deal with an issue, a system that has been broken for decades upon decades upon decades. And while he's taking steps on his own, Republicans have made this an incredibly political issue. They have turned this into a, a uh, p- into political stunts that we have seen over and over and over again. The president has done more to secure the border and to deal with this issue of immigration than anybody else. He really has. June saw the single largest month-to-month drop in lawful, unlawful border crossing because of the policies this president put in place. We've got a record number of federal agents and officers, more than 24,000 working to secure the border 
because of the funding this president secured. We brought, we brought 21 world leaders on the West Coast, as you all remember, together for the first time to ever to deal with this issue in a, in a regional way uh, because of the alliances that this president has put forth. And we secured record funding for border security and management. And let's not forget, we expanded, we've ex expanded the pathway uh, to citizenship under this president. And mind you, he's been doing this on his own. Does he want to do it in a bipartisan way? Absolutely. That's why he put forth uh, his per first piece of legislation to be on immigration, to fix this broken system. We are, we are willing to work uh, with Congress and with Republicans. We need Republicans to do this. Okay. Biden's done more to secure the border than anybody else. This is what Karine Jean-Pierre is saying. Meanwhile, illegal border crossings have surged under the Biden administration with an estimated 1.5 million illegal immigrants uh, that are considered gotaways. And those have been recorded since Biden took office in 2021. Just think about that for a second. 415,000 total reported gotaways for 2018, 2019 and 2020. Compare that number. 415 for three years compared to 1.5 million since 2021. The Trump versus Biden uh, comparison here is incomparable. The number of illegal border crossings uh, jumped to a record high in fiscal year 2022. So that's where we are. Joe El Baboso Biden failing, failing the American people. And the question is, will we forgive him? Will we forgive Joe El Baboso Biden at the ballot box? I hope that Americans don't forget what's happening here, because to me, this is an unforgivable action. Right. I mean, how much can anybody endure? I mean, even um, let's see, you had Eric Adams, who was flipping out, Kathy Hochul, the, the governor of New York, flipping out and the latest to flip out and say, look, no mas. Ya no puedo mas. Right. We've got uh, another sanctuary city Democrat, Phil Murphy, the governor of New Jersey, who's uh, now chiming in, saying the same thing that it, this is this is not going to work. He said uh, that New Jersey does not have the resources to take an, uh, on this influx of migrants from New York City at the direction of the Biden administration. And he uh, went on to say that New Jersey would become a sanctuary state for immigrants on his watch. He said that as he campaigned. But now it seems that his Democrat friends are exploiting that. And this is part of the issue. So uh, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, here's another quote from here. I don't see any scenario. This is Governor Phil Murphy. I don't see any scenario where we're going to be able to take in a program in Atlantic City or, frankly, anywhere else in the state. Uh, and he said this on, on the news recently. He said, you need to scale enormous, uh, an enormous amount of federal support resources that go beyond anything that we can afford. Putting everything else aside, I just don't see it. I would suspect that it's going to continue to be the case. So he knows that he can't fix it. He knows that there's a problem. He knows nobody's going to fix it. And now he's screwed. You know, so good old uh, Governor Murphy having to, to deal with a problem that he helped create. He was out there proudly saying, uh, you know, we're a sanctuary state. Now I know that some of you agree with me and you're like, yeah, what an idiot. How could he do that? What a bubble. But at the same time, I'm sure he's making the argument that, look, the morality and the importance of caring for for migrants and asylum seekers and whatever other label they want to put on them. This is what we have to do. We're, to be, we're called to be good humans. We have to treat people well, but up to a point, right? And I think that's exactly what every single Republican has said, but they were too busy calling every Republican saying we couldn't take on this influx of illegal immigrants. 
they, they were calling us bigots, right? They were calling us xenophobes and every other name that you could come up with. So now they have to, they have to eat their words, and who loses? We the people. Anyway, I want to get into a little bit of what's going on in Florida, the uh, hurricane and all of um, the, the updates that are coming out of Florida. There's plenty, plus a little 2024 action on that. We're uh, looking forward to chatting with Lieutenant Governor Jeanette Nunez from Florida. She's scheduled to be with us a little bit later in the program. So don't go anywhere, folks. Keep it locked right here. I am Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. The hardest hit communities, uh, it would be very disruptive to have the whole um, kind of uh, security apparatus that goes because there's only so many ways to get into these places. And so what we want to do is make sure that the power restoration continues, that the relief efforts continue and that we don't have any any interruption in that. That's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and. Uh, there's a piece in the Wall Street Journal that um, is describing what is going on in Florida. And I'm looking at it. It's a really well done piece. And I wanted to get to the bottom of it rather than, uh, you know, share from the piece with it. I have the opportunity to bring uh, Lieutenant Governor Jeanette Nunes from Florida on onto the program so that we could talk about some updates in Florida and maybe a little 2024. Madam Lieutenant Governor, welcome. Good evening. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. So let's let's talk about this because I mean I'm not on the ground in Florida I'm in uh, New York area and uh, we've seen the videos and everything on the news and it it seems terrible but yet uh, I've got friends and people that I know that are on social media and they they seem to be in good spirits tell us what's going on in Florida yeah well certainly it was a major catastrophe a hurricane category three which if you know a thing or two about hurricanes you know that that has the potential to be life altering. Uh, devastating for so many communities that have been impacted. Uh, But all things considered, those communities are resilient. They're doing well. Uh, It hit around um, 7.45 in the morning uh, just two days ago, and and yet we're already on the ground making sure that all of these communities, all these counties that have been impacted with significant flooding, and we're talking at the peak probably about eight feet of storm surge, um, and, of course, rainfall and winds and power being out, but but we've been able to, in Florida under governor's leadership, we've been able to to really be the national leader in terms of emergency management. So we had all the resources staged. Um, They were pre-positioned. They were located within close proximity. So as soon as it was safe and the winds died down, we had urban search and rescue teams going out, uh, checking on people, making sure that they were getting to the most remote, hardest hit areas. We had National Guardsmen that were also ready, Highway Patrol, Department of Transportation that have already, within 48 hours, cleared every single state road of debris so that those power restoration linemen can get through and they can begin that arduous and and tedious task. We had uh, probably at the high over half a million customers without power. And as you can imagine, Florida heat. That is something that is a huge priority to get those people back up and running. So right now, as of earlier this evening, we had roughly 75,000 that are still without power. But those power companies are working around the clock, 
uh, and they're hopeful to be able to get the vast majority of those people up and running. Some of them will take a little bit more time because uh, perhaps the damage is much more extensive. You know, you've got stations, you've got the grids, you've got, you know, the poles that are down. And, and some counties, I mean, I think they're just the poles are wiped out. So we're working around the clock, but we have expectations that the vast majority of Floridians will have power uh, in the coming days. And, and of course, that comes with uh, not just having the power, you can get the schools back up and running businesses. Uh, so we had, uh, you know, all of those assets that were positioned, ready to go, everything from watercraft to aircraft to high water vehicles, because the first and most important goal, as you can imagine, is always to preserve life and, and help those that are perhaps trapped in their homes or, uh, or dealing with dangerous situations. So a lot of that um, really comes with leadership and having a great team. Our emergency management team is top notch and uh, they have tremendous partnerships at the local level as well. So it's been a really uh, coordinated highly sophisticated process that we've uh, endeavored to make sure taking care of every single aspect from, like I said, power restoration being key, fuel, uh, making sure we have access to health care for those that are, you know, in, in areas that are difficult to get to. We're sort of bringing the services to them. And Lieutenant Governor Nunez, tell us about, uh, I can tell you, I used to have a girlfriend in Fort Lauderdale, and I remember um, hurricanes and big storms coming, and nobody handles hurricanes better, in my opinion, than Floridians, right? They're super prepared. They they, they know what they're doing. And it's it's clear to me that, you know, you guys are doing the same thing in government. You know exactly what to do. Uh, But I don't get the same impression when I look at the Biden administration and how they handle things at the national level. And I saw a news clip of uh, Governor DeSantis uh, saying to, you know, um, I like to call him Joe El Baboso Biden, and saying, don't come here and interrupt while we're doing what we've got to do if you want to come and tour and do your uh, photo op. But I think there's a lot that he could learn uh, from the governor and your team because it seems like he isn't handling his business. Do you think he'd be able to learn? Well, you know, again, Florida is a national leader, and I think that comes with leadership from the top and then having a continuous state of readiness. Um, not only do we know how to handle uh, hurricanes, but other other disasters as well. You know, we we make sure that we fund these things appropriately, and we're not uh, we're not waiting around. We're cutting through red tape. You know, last year when we had a devastating Category Four hurricane hit Southwest Florida, the Fort Myers area, uh, the governor tasked Department of Transportation to repair those bridges within days, in some cases, and in another case within uh, weeks to be able to restore access. So, you know, being able to cut through that red tape, uh, being present, not, you know, not afterwards for a photo op or, you know, not weeks after, you know, you got to be there from the start. And that's why, you know, the governor and I have been really on top of the situation, even when it was just looking to be a a tropical storm, something that, you know, that's, uh, um, you know, something we can deal with pretty easily here in Florida. Uh, But once this thing started to intensify and once it started to escalate, you know, the governor was at that EOC. He was getting briefings. He was, like I said, prepositioning assets. And, you know, we we, we want to get recovery to those communities because, uh, as I mentioned, we have so many people that are still without power. And you don't have power. You can't, you know, you need to go and get meals at the, at the pods, the points of distributions that we've set up. We've got family resource centers. And, and so I do believe that the federal government, in particular uh, the president, could, could learn a lot from what we do here in Florida. You know, the most important thing that the federal government needs to do right now for us um, is not 
visits, but more so make sure that we get the appropriate FEMA reimbursement, make sure that our requests for uh, major uh, declaration of disaster in certain counties, uh, we put in for a number of counties and federal government only approved a handful, seven at this point. We're asking for them to reconsider and to, and to uh, include additional counties that have been very hard hit. Um, so that's really more of our focus from, from the standpoint of what the federal government can do to assist us. But in the meantime, the governor is focused on getting that, those, uh, those communities that are struggling, that, that need that power, that need, uh, need meals, they need water, they need tarps, and they don't want to be held up by motorcades or Secret Service. Florida Lieutenant Governor Jeanette Nunez, tell us, um, I, I've seen, and I think most of America has seen, the weaponization of government towards political opponents. And, and, and that's a real thing. And, and I'm just wondering, and I hope it's not the case, but have you guys had to uh, experience that or combat that uh, in Florida in in the midst of a natural disaster when dealing with the Biden administration? Yeah, what I would say is that we've been working, you know, we have our team set up to work with FEMA. Um, those people that, that are here on the ground, they're not political people. They're people that are trying to do their job. Uh, so we haven't had a situation where we, you know, we've had something held over our heads. But we do want, you know, FEMA to obviously take into account the entirety of the of the counties that have been hit during this disaster. So, you know, we're going to keep pushing on that front. We have all of the all the documentation to show kind of the extent of the damage. Uh, so our our hope is that those, those counties will be included in, in short order. All right. Now, straight ahead, I want to get into a little bit of you guys have had such a record on uh, taking on the culture wars. And, uh, of course, the governor is is out there managing this crisis and he's running for president. And there's there's a a lot of balls to juggle. So I'd love to get into a little bit of a conversation on uh, how you navigate the tricky waters of the culture wars, because it seems like whenever you guys take a stand and do something uh, and take a swing at, at the uh, encroaching cultural Marxism or whatever it may be, it seems that, you know, it, it becomes a national headline and they're pushing back, which means you're doing something right. So I want to uh, jump into that. And I also wanted to uh, get your take on, on the uh, political scene as well. So folks, we're on with Florida's Lieutenant Governor Jeanette Nunez uh, discussing um, the, the leadership that the uh, DeSantis administration is, is putting out there. Uh, helping the people of Florida. And we're going to continue that straight ahead. If you want to join the conversation, feel free to give us a call. 833-482-5337 is the phone number. Or you can get us online at richvaldezamericaatnight.com or hit me on any of the social media at richvaldez with an S. And of course, the number 833-4-VALDEZ. Don't go anywhere. We're coming right back. We're just getting started. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen.
All right, familia, welcome back. Rich Valdez with you. Our guest, Florida Lieutenant Governor Jeanette Nunez. And Florida's not to be left behind. Earlier in the week, uh, there was a story out of Mississippi where they caught an 800-pound alligator. And Florida was not to be undone. A 920-pound dinosaur alligator was caught. This is crazy. you got to see what these things look like. It's amazing. Um, I love Florida. Anyway, Lieutenant Governor, let's uh, continue. I-, I know that you guys have been taking shots at the culture as they take shots at families and children uh, all across your state and, quite frankly, all across America. We see it on a regular basis. Uh, It seems to me that Florida has been, uh, yourself, Governor DeSantis, your administration, have been very uh, vocal and unafraid in standing up to woke ideology. Is this, um, I should say, is this, I guess it comes at a high political cost. What does it cost you? Nothing. If you do what's right, I, you know, we're firm believers that you got to stand up for what you believe. Uh, the governor has always said, you know, if you lead and you're leading people in the right direction, then we'll follow. And I think a testament to that is our historic reelection. Uh, we won in 2018 by half of one percent. It was a very close race, nail biter to the end. Uh, and then you fast forward four years later to our reelection, and we won by over 20%. We had so many counties that have been traditional Democratic stronghold counties that flipped to a Republican, and, and including Miami-Dade County, which is oh, yeah. you know, the city of Miami, and that's been for a long time. I mean, I think Hillary won by 32 points. It's just one of those counties that consistently votes blue. And, you know, with the governor and myself on the ticket, we were able to convert that uh, into an 11 plus 11 percentage points plus for Republicans. So it's just, you know, I think when when people start to see the dangerous, radical ideology that so many on the left are peddling, um, they don't want any part of it. And then we've been able to really cut across partisan lines on so many issues, in particular issues related to our children and families and parental rights. And so I, I think when you really stand up for what you believe and you're you're unafraid of uh, what those political consequences may be, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we've said it often that if the the result of what we were standing up for was that we weren't going to be reelected, then so be it. But we did the right thing. Uh, so, you know, we're not afraid to, to battle the left. The left uh, loves to pick on uh, Governor DeSantis. He is the uh, the darling of the left punching bag. So I, mm. I believe that they know that he's doing something right. They're, they're afraid of him and they're afraid of all, um, you know, the good work that he's doing. And so many other states have sort of followed our lead. Uh, we believe that Florida has been a blueprint for, for a lot of other states on a lot of issues, everything from making sure that girls sports is protected. Uh, again, something that cuts across partisan lines, but you read, you know, you read the, the corporate media, you read the headlines, right. the, all the spin and the narratives that they love to uh, to push on us. And you think it was something that is highly unpopular. But when you talk to everyday Americans, especially here in Florida, um, they want no part of that. So we're just proud to, to represent a Floridians and governor's not going to back down. That is uh, something you can take to the bank. Yeah, we've seen over the last few years uh, many Republicans making gains uh, with uh, Hispanic voters across the country. President Trump did well with that. 
and 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 uh, we've seen it in Texas, uh, some Hispanic Republicans making some history in those elections. But something you just brought up I thought was remarkable was how the shift was from 2018 uh, to, to the most recent election with uh, Miami-Dade County, where there's a, a ton of Hispanics. How, how do you um, – what was the, the strategy, the plan, the outreach? Was it just uh, something targeted at all people where you say, hey, look, we've done a better job and life is better for you, so – that's why you're voting for us? Or was there a targeted campaign to reach certain populations, in particular Hispanics? We, we were really focused on reaching out to the, the entirety, right, the entirety of Florida, uh, from Key West to Pensacola. But, of course, Hispanics, large uh, percentage of, of voters um, in the state of Florida, large concentrations of Hispanic voters in South Florida, Central Florida, but, but really all over Florida. So, you know, the governor and I, when we ran the first time, uh, were, I was proud to, to be elected the first Hispanic female lieutenant governor in the history of the state of Florida. Thank you. My, my parents came to this country in 1961. They fled communist Cuba, uh, came here with nothing more than the clothes on their back, eternally grateful, always taught me how we needed to love this country and appreciate everything they did for us and so many others that have a similar story to mine. Um, so that's something that was uh, embedded in me as a, a very early age. And so when we were running, and and that, that was something that, you know, I, I really had such a passion to talk to voters on the issue of faith, family, and freedom. And that's something that I believe connects a lot of Floridians, but in particular Hispanic Floridians. Um, they really do believe that you know, they need to be in charge of their children's upbringing. Uh, so many of them fled socialist and communist countries where the the governments, the regimes there were trying to take the place of parents. They were trying to pit child against parents. Uh, so that is sort of the holy grail for Hispanics, protecting their children, protecting their family, you know, very, very focused on faith. And then at the end of the day, you know, when we went through COVID, I think a lot of Hispanics were just so pleased and so appreciative of the governor's policies uh, because he understood the tyranny of what was happening. He understood how they were trampling on your freedoms a little bit at a time. Uh, but when people sort of woke up from that, that daze and saw that there was a governor willing to stand up and say, no, I will not allow government um, to decide whose business is essential or to shut down churches or to force you to get uh, a vaccine that in the end was proven to be ineffective against uh, transmission and, and obviously things that, that many Hispanics from the perspective of where they came from or where their families came from, none of those COVID lockdown mandates sat well with them. So I really do think that was a pivotal uh, shift in terms of Hispanic support. Uh, But again, just really focusing on enhancing the quality of our education, making sure our children aren't indoctrinated, uh, making sure even at the university level that they're not co-opting some of these terms that have you know, initially had noble intentions, but have really become just a just a tool for for the radical left and the ideology that they're trying to 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 really impose on on people throughout the state. Folks, we're on with Florida's Lieutenant Governor Jeanette Nunez, and um, Lieutenant Governor, how does um, um, the daughter of Cuban immigrants growing up in Miami end up? in politics and government. What did that story look like for you? 
Well, it, it really was, I like to say, an act of divine providence because I studied political science with absolutely no desire to run for office ever. Um, you know, came out of college, went to work for a state representative, was a legislative aide for several years, ended up working at a hospital doing government affairs and community affairs. And uh, about 2010, I got the crazy idea to run for a state house seat. So uh, I served in the Florida legislature. I served as a Florida House member for eight years. And then I was going to take a hiatus and retire from politics, at least temporarily. And then I got a call from a congressman at the time who wanted me to consider running on the ticket. Wasn't exactly thinking of doing that. You know, I have uh, three kids and my husband wasn't really thrilled with the idea. My daughter, who's my oldest, wasn't thrilled either. My middle one's the political one, so he was all on board. So it was kind of split two to two at that point. And uh, my youngest at the time, probably 12 years old, uh, told me, yeah, whatever, Mom. So I took that as a yes. So, yeah, I, I kid. That's <laughs> the swing not boat. exactly how it, yeah, he was the swing boat. But, you know, I, uh, I've been so blessed to serve as lieutenant governor and be able to have a front row seat to all of the things that have been going on in this state. And, and as you can imagine, third largest state, you know, 15th largest economy in the world. We've been able to tackle so many important issues and really be on the cutting edge of those issues. And I know I said it previously in the interview, uh, but I do think that many states have followed Florida's lead on a lot of important policy discussions. And were it not for Governor DeSantis and, and our administration's agenda, I think many states perhaps would have dragged their feet or perhaps wouldn't have been as bold uh, to tackle those same issues. Yeah, I agree with that statement. And I think it inspires not only just other states and other politicians and, and other administrations, but I, I think there's a lot of parents that have seen uh, the leadership that, that you guys have had and, and that other Floridians have had and taking on school boards and taking on woke ideology. And there seems to be a, a resurgence amongst parents to, to take on the things that matter. So uh, kudos to you guys for doing a great job. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you being here and staying up late. It's not always easy to come on late night programs, but uh, it was an honor to speak with you and chat with you. Folks, Florida Lieutenant Governor Jeanette Nunez, I want to thank you for being with us. Godspeed to you. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be on. Likewise. Folks, there is more to come straight ahead. Your calls and more. Don't move a muscle. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Moving along here, uh, today there's a, a report that uh, the 45th president of the United States, El Trumpito Donaldus Magnus, he says that he might take part in future Republican primary debates. And of course, yeah, I'm pretty sure he's going to because debate performances usually help your numbers, right? And if you're the front runner and you're Trump, right? And I say that you're Trump because Trump, he, he does well in the debate stage, I, I feel. He goes in there, he you know, makes a few jokes, he... He, 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 I think he's at his best when people are coming at him. 
So it makes sense for me that he would want to do it. It also makes sense for me why he might skip the first one. Uh, but he uh, has agreed, or he's considering agreeing, to uh, go on the second debate, which is scheduled for September 27th at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California. And it's going to be televised by Fox Business Channel and Univision. Uh, so that was something that he didn't rule out in uh, in the uh, radio interview that he did uh, with Todd Starnes. And uh, that was yesterday. So I'm looking forward to seeing if that, in fact, is uh, the case, because, you know, that's going to be a, a rating success. Because whether you love or hate Trump, everybody's going to be watching it. Because, I mean, why not, right? You don't know who, you know, just remember the last one, Little Marco, you know. <laughs> he just comes up with these funny names. that it, it's, it's, quite, it's quite entertaining for me. Anyway, like many have said, he is the P.T. Barnum of modern politics. Now, he was on Truth Social today uh, discussing the January 6th indictment, uh, letting everybody know that what the government did in the destruction of all of their records and documents that they they collected, the interviews that they did, um, depositions that they held, all of that stuff was part of the January 6th committee hearings and all that stuff. They destroyed everything. And uh, and now it, everything seems to be okay, that the government destroyed everything that they didn't want to use because, in fact, many of these things could be used as um, exculpatory to Trump or even beneficial in some way. But that's what happened. Listen to Trump. Now that I have full subpoena power because of the freedom of speech sham indictment by crooked Joe Biden, deranged Jack Smith and the DOJ, it has just been reported that the unselect... January 6th committee, they are unselect indeed, of political hacks and thugs, has illegally destroyed all of their records and their documents. So they took all of their records, all of their documents, they reported it, tried to get me indicted, and probably did, and then they destroyed everything. This is unthinkable, and the fake political indictment against me must be immediately withdrawn. The system is rigged and corrupt, very much like the presidential election of 2020, and we have plenty of proof on that. Now, Trump was on a tear, right? He, he was going off on this stuff on Truth Social with one video after the next. But something he said here, he says, they tried to get me indicted, and they probably did. This was a very interesting thing, and we talked about it on this program, and we had the legal experts on, and it's something we shouldn't forget. The fact that the government... Now, I don't mean the government like the prosecution. I mean the government, our, our United States Congress, weaponized this hearing, shaping it as if it was some sort of oversight, like we were looking into what, what happened here and there, um, but with the intention of really doing nothing. Right? They didn't come out with anything other than a report at the end, which is what they were expected to come out with as their final work product. However, they were... They were leaking information to all sorts of entities, and, and this was constantly in the media. And, and in, in effect, they had a subpoena power that the prosecution could never have because of the limitations of law. And because they were acting in a political capacity, they were able to gather information that would never be allowed in a courtroom, at least to be gathered by the police, right, or by the government, by prosecutors, federal prosecutors. It just, it wouldn't be allowed. But they took this information and then they put it out there to the public. And just imagine if, you know, if you're following the rules of civil procedure in a courtroom and you're the defendant in the case, and all of a sudden 
Congress decides to, you know, we're going to investigate you too so that we can put out everything that they aren't legally allowed to get, we can get, and we'll put it out for them, working hand in glove. This is exactly what we've seen in in so many despotic regimes. And it, it was horrible then, it's still horrible now, and I think it's something we should never forget because so many things that they've done to Trump, it's kind of hard to keep track, right? But this is one of those that I think is, um, it's just insane that it was allowed to happen. It's insane that it did happen. And uh, I hope that there's some sort of reversal eventually, but it, it's just, it still doesn't uh, shock, it still shocks me. I'm disappointed, but not surprised, I should say. I'm not shocked that they did it. I'm shocked that it actually happened. Anyway, Trump continued on Truth Social, but we'll get to that in the next segment. Don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Life prosecutor, deranged Jack Smith. That's right, he's deranged. Break into my former Twitter account without informing me and indeed trying to completely hide this atrocity from me. What could he possibly find out that is not already known? Just like the early morning raid of Mar-a-Lago. Why isn't the DOJ raiding crooked Joe Biden's house? Why aren't they raiding his phones? He's the most corrupt and incompetent president in the history of the United States. That's the one they should be looking at. So President Trump says that they should be looking at the the most corrupt, deranged president we've ever had. I agree with him. Uh, and I think most people do, right? And this is a bone of contention for so many Americans. Why is it that there's so much rampant, at least perceived criminality, and nothing seems to happen if you're not like in Trump world, right? Because you could be a criminal like... Uh, and be a Republican, and nobody's looking at you unless you're a Republican that's like, well, Trump's not so bad, then, uh-oh, let's get this guy, right? It's that whole um, multi-tiered justice system that we have, and I think that'll always be there. I, I don't think that we get away from that, right? I just don't. I, I liken it to if you're the son of somebody with a lot of money, you know, son of a rapper, son of a congressman, son of anybody who, who's got some power, influence, money, and you get pulled over and they go, oh, that's so-and-so. Oh, that's so-and-so's kid. You know, People will tend to, um, usually, I think, uh, look the other way or try to extend some courtesy. And, and government is no different. You couple that with a, an undying thirst for power. And now you have this recipe for disaster where they're going to come at you every single way. So in this case, now they're going after Trump's Twitter. They're going after everything. And it makes you think, these guys, like, uh, like, like Cash Patel says, these guys are government gangsters. And it makes you think that the biggest mob out there might be the mob in Washington, D.C. But there's still a mob out there. And I don't mean the woke mob. I mean, like, the actual mob. And the one that was really, you know, at the height of its uh, strength back in the 80s, the mafia, you know, in New York City and Chicago and other places across the country. And there's a federal prosecutor that, that connected with an unlikely partner. And these guys took on the mob, and it's quite the tale. And we're going to get into that straight ahead with Dan Dorsky. 
He is uh, the author of a book on the, his war uh, against the mafia, and you don't want to miss that. That's coming up straight ahead. So, folks, stick with us. It's Rich Valdez, America at Night. Our phone number, if you want to join us, 833 482 5337. the city that never sleeps 17 miles from madison square garden new york city it's america at night with rich valdez america's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across america and now here is your host rich valdez What's up, America? I am Rich Valdez. Hello, good evening. Welcome to the program. Our telephone number, if you want to join us tonight, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. And the White House is asking for $4 billion to boost FEMA funding. Um, sounds about right. Maybe a little late, but hey, n- nothing like um, showing up when people are uh, in Maui and Florida and everywhere else dealing with stuff. Uh, And then we've got payrolls every month this year have been revised downwards. The economy's not doing that great. The jobs report came out. We're going to get to that on uh, our next show. Uh, We're going to talk with an economist on what's the real deal, the nitty gritty on the jobs report. And everybody's favorite hate group, Antifa, is spreading a hoax claiming that a homeless man who died of natural causes was killed by the cops. What a surprise. And there's a story of... uh, an FBI agent and a federal prosecutor. And they led some of the most relentless and successful attacks against organized crime in American history. This unique and unexpected set of circumstances caused former federal prosecutor Dan Dorsky and former FBI agent Mike Campy to finally step in forward and reveal themselves. This is quite the story, and we're about to hear it because we've got Dan Dorsky with us tonight. Dan Dorsky, welcome to the program. Thank you, Rich. Um, you, pleasure to be here. Likewise. Thank you. It's good to talk to you. I, I love a good mob story, especially when it's true. <laughs> you know, ah, true stories are the best. We and have I a lot wanna, of them. Well, I want to just let everybody know the, uh, the, uh, the name of the book, because you've written a book, and it's uh, War Against the Mafia, How a Prosecutor and an FBI Agent Devastated the New York Mob. And uh, Dan Dorsky, you're a former federal prosecutor. Tell us how this whole thing began unraveling. Um, sure. The book. Uh, you mean how 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 we came well, to write it? Well, the whole story, the whole story, the the unique circumstances, and how you guys got into this mess. Yeah. So, well, Mike is um, is 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 probably the most prolific um, FBI agent um, against uh, organized crime um, in, in that he uh, twice put together cases that took down the ruling body of the most powerful criminal organization in America, which is the Genovese crime family. Um, and I assisted with the second of those um, in certain respects, which we can talk about. Mm-hmm. And that's what he kind of brings to the table. And on, on my side, I uh, brought more cases to trial um, against the mafia than any other federal prosecutor. And I obtained convictions in all of them. And um, through the years, people have kind of urged us both uh, to to write our 
um, you know, kind of life stories. And we really hadn't decided to do that until recently when, as, as you referenced, there were a um, unique set of circumstances that decided that, that made us decide to, to step forward and, and tell our story. Uh, and what that involves, and we write about it all in detail in the book, uh, War Against the Mafia. Um, but uh, what it involves is there's a gangster who Mike worked with, a guy named Mike Cookie Durso, and Mike operated him uh, for three years undercover. Um, the end result was what the FBI themselves called the uh, among the most significant and successful undercover operations in the history of law enforcement. And we were able to arrest uh, dozens and dozens of, of very, very powerful uh, gangsters um, uh, for, from the New York Mafia, which, which runs organized crime in America. Um, and uh, Mike worked with him. I, I helped out. And then over the next 20 years or so, Mike and, and Durso stayed in touch. They'd sometimes loop me in just to kind of check in with each other. Um, and then just a few years ago, Durso reached out and asked uh, Mike and I to help him out with something. And we uh, agreed to do that. And we ended up spending some time together. And then Durso, we reminisced. And Durso said, you know, we should really do a book. Or he said, I should write a book about what I did because I was undercover and I basically devastated the New York Mafia. Um, a book publisher uh, offered a, a book contract on the spot, um, wanted the three of us to write it. He said, when have you ever had a gangster, an FBI agent, and a prosecutor uh, collaborate on, on anything or write about their experiences? Um, we started to work on it. The um, uh, uh, Hollywood found out about it. We were in conversations about movies and, and, and TV shows right. um, uh, over the last couple of years uh, for this. And then we had a falling out with uh, with the gangster Durso. Mike Campy <laughs> and I had a falling out with him. Probably not. As luck would have. Terrible surprise to hear that. Yeah. And uh, so Mike and I just decided to move forward on our own. And that that's how it, we came to write this book. Well, I mean, it seems like a, like a, an, an unlikely um, union of people, uh, but it makes yeah. for a fascinating story, right? So let, let's start at the beginning, right? So you're a former federal prosecutor. You're you're there bringing the case. Uh, uh, Mike Campy is undercover with the Genovese crime family. Is that correct? So Mike Campy is the FBI agent, and he's working um, uh, a mobster for the Genovese crime family, a guy named Mike Durso. Uh, who was shot in the head. His cousin was killed. They put another contract out on him, and he decided, I've had enough. Uh, I'm going to work for the FBI instead of for the mob. And he did that What secretly. did he do? Why did they yeah. want to kill him? So uh, that is a great question. Um, he was sitting down playing poker uh, with what he thought were his close friends who'd been at his wedding just months before, and it turned out that they were organizing the assassination of him and his cousin. Why did they do it? Um, uh, mafia politics. It was, it was really two things. One, the guy uh, whose name was Carmine per, uh, Polito, who put together the, the hit, he did it because um, he had taken out a loan for uh, tens of thousands of dollars, and he figured if I just kill them, then I'll never have to repay it. As, as crazy as that sounds, that'll mm -hmm. justify a mob murder because it's a life of treachery. Um, and the second reason was Polito was doing bank robberies in the city. And um, the guy who he killed, a guy named Tino Lombardi, didn't want him to be with the mob crew that did the bank robberies. So Polito figured if I kill him, then I can uh, continue to do uh, the bank robberies. 
mafia politics doesn't sound too different than Washington D.C. To be frank with you, but uh, uh, it, it, yeah, it, except for here they'll, uh, they'll 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 resolve it with a bullet. <laughs> so you, you, uh, he's there. He's doing all of this stuff, and and ultimately this guy says, "All right, I've had enough. I'm going to turn states, and I'm going to start working with you guys." And the story unfolds from there. So I want to pick up from there when we come back. Folks, we are on with the author of the book, War Against the Mafia, How a Prosecutor and an FBI Agent Devastated the New York Mob. Mike uh, Campy is the FBI agent. And our guest tonight, Dan Dorsky, former federal prosecutor, is with us. If you want to join the national conversation here tonight, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. We're coming right back with... Dan Dorsky, and the rest of this mob story. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Across America to the liberty loving Latino Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. And we're on with Dan Dorsky. He's a former federal prosecutor and uh, the author of War Against the Mafia. And Dan Dorsky, we left off with you telling us about uh, the situation where you had your, your colleague, the FBI agent, Mike Campy. He's He's doing undercover work. He's working with uh, somebody that was about to turn because he was tired of what was going on with uh, the organized crime family that he was uh, embedded in. Let's pick up right there. Yeah, so then Mike and Durso, Durso's the gangster, um, worked together for three years, uh, deeply embedded uh, within the most powerful and secretive uh, mafia family uh, in, in America, which is known as the Genovese, uh, which was run by uh, a name many of your listeners may be familiar with, uh, Vinny the Chin Gigante. He's, uh, he was known as the odd father, the guy that walked around acting as though he was crazy, which was all uh, an act to avoid going to, to, to prison. Mm-hmm. And um, while Mike was working with Durso, uh, ironically, the gangsters, his fellow gangsters, were promoting him within the organization and targeting him to uh, eventually potentially become their future boss. Uh, so Durso was recording all the conversations. And as a result, uh, uh, Mike has recordings of the gangsters saying to Durso, who is actually, in essence, an FBI agent, um, uh, for, for our purposes, telling him, you're, you're so good that we're going to promote you to future leadership. And they uh, compared him to John Gotti. And it went on for three years. Uh, And then eventually you have to take a case down for a lot of reasons. One of them is they were assigning Durso to uh, murders, to a lot of murders. We write about all this in the book. One was a massacre of the Italian, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, entire Albanian mafia. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Genovese family was going to um, have uh, 25 of their men uh, uh, going with machine guns and massacre the Albanians because they had a dispute with them. Obviously, the FBI can't send a guy in with a machine gun to to kill Albanian right. gangsters. So uh, Mike had now, to what, take the. Do, case what was down. the purpose of that? What, what were they encroaching on? I'm guessing it was a turf war of some sort. 
Yeah. So uh, there was a, a Genovese capo named Patty Falsetti, who we have on tape, saying that the Albanians were distinct and unique and that they didn't respect or fear the uh, Italian mob. Mm. Uh, and he basically said, if you go to a, a sit down with them, a meeting with them, you have to bring a gun because you, you'll have to kill them or, or they'll kill you. So it was um, the Albanians had shown a lot of disrespect uh, towards the Italians. They had slapped a couple of, uh, of, of their leaders. And uh, the Italians said, essentially, for us to uh, own the streets, which which is what we do, we're going to have to take them all out. Um, so uh, that was one of the murders that was assigned to Durso. He was also assigned to uh, murder a, a legend uh, of, of the waterfront, a Genovese gangster named uh, George Barone. So Mike Campy mm. had to take the case down at, at that point. And it, it was time anyway. They'd been on the, operating for three years, and the result wow. was historic. Um, 60, 70 of the, the most powerful gangsters in America were, were taken down as a result of their work. Um, and I was assigned to the case uh, soon before that to help make sure that they uh, resulted in convictions. And I took several of the cases to trial. Um, and uh, it just devastated uh, uh, the mafia for not only because of all the arrests and the convictions, but also at an emotional level, you know, to, to think that one of the people who they had groomed most closely for leadership all along was working for the FBI. So at this point, you, you, you um, when you're bringing the case down, what is that like? Is this like we see in the movies where there's like a big raid and, you know, what, what goes into the, that, that final moment where you bring down the big house of cards? Yeah. So we had two main uh, locations for the arrest. Uh, one was in New York where the bulk of the arrest took place. And there were two other prosecutors who were assigned uh, before me and they handled the New York arrest. I went to Florida with Mike for the Florida um, portion of the arrest. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's raids. It's, you know, 5 a.m. knocking down doors uh, putting people in cuffs and uh, bringing them uh, to prison uh, and then processing them. That's where the prosecutors step in um, to, you know, negotiate bails or detention hearings. And uh, the mafia, you know, they were just incredulous. They didn't believe that Durso uh, actually had been uh, working for the FBI all along. Their, uh, uh, so some of their membership just thought that the FBI was lying to them to try to get them to make statements uh, because he was such a, a through and through hardened gangster. They they just couldn't believe it. And obviously, I think most people listening uh, that have observed or that were around and, and remember those times, uh, I was young, but I remember that stuff. And I, I lived in New York at the time. And I remember um, Giuliani played a role in this and it was the whole creation of, of Rico. This was around the same time, no? Uh, no, so Giuliani, his case, uh, the commission case, was in the mid-'80s. It's one of the reasons why I became a federal prosecutor. It helped inspire me to, to do this kind of work, um, seeing uh, that they could take down the bosses so comprehensively. But our case, the takedown, was in the early 2000s. Uh, so, you oh, know, so it was continuing the, yeah, it was, it was continuing the attack against organized crime uh, in, in an effort to reduce them to the level of street gangs. So now, what is the, um, if in your assessment, your opinion, what is the level of of uh, involvement that we see in organized crime today? Uh, it doesn't seem to me that the uh, Italian uh, crime families, the way they were, you know, Genovese, and, and et cetera, um, they're not it anymore, right? Um, it, others have stepped in. There's Russians that have stepped in. There's Albanians that have stepped in. What, what is the current state of affairs, you know, from your view? 
Yeah, so there I, I don't have as much current information. I mean, when, when I was prosecuting the cases, um, the Russian mob, I, I, I brought one case against a, 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 a Russian outfit, and they were all answering to the traditional Cosa Nostra, which was the Italian mob. So mm. in order, even though they were brutal uh, in their own right, they were afraid of the uh, Italian mob because they were more deeply entrenched. They had more members and they were better organized. Um, what I've heard, I'm still in touch with some FBI agents, and what I've heard is after uh, the September 11th attacks, uh, um, well, well, this part I know because I was, I was a prosecutor at the time, um, uh, back then uh, traditional organized crime was the number one priority of the United States Department of Justice, but after September 11th, the new top priority became terrorism. And as a result, a lot of the agents who were assigned to organized crime got redistributed to terrorism and taken away from uh, investigating organized crime. So in the conversations I've had with uh, current FBI agents, um, organized crime is, is, is unfortunately uh, doing fairly well now because there just aren't the same number of agents or prosecutors assigned to, uh, to, 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 to try to uproot them. Yeah, plus you have the, the, the advent of the cartels, which uh, seem to be running everything from, from their country to this one and in between, which is a, is a whole other can of worms. Folks, we're on with the author of the book, War Against the Mafia. Dan Dorsky is a former federal prosecutor, took on the Genovese crime family and brought him down with the assistance of his, uh, his colleague in this, Mike uh, Campy, who's the FBI agent that was undercover, as well as uh, Mr. Durso, who was the gangster that turned states and uh, was uh, unlikely bedfellows for a little while until you guys had a falling out. But it just a, that in and of itself, I think, is, is quite the story. Not even the book, the, you know, the, the hanging out until you had the falling out. Absolutely. Right? It's just such a, it's, it's a real story. Um, Dan Dorsky, let everybody know how they can get a copy of the book and how they could follow the work that you're doing now. Yeah, for sure. And, and right before I do, let me, let me just say, we, we go into uh, in depth what you, what you just referenced there. And we talk about uh, cases against the Gambinos, the Columbos, the Lucchese, the Bananos. So it's wow. a very comprehensive book, although so much is about what you and I have touched on uh, as well. And, um, yeah, please go on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. Um, I'm sure there are other places as well, but those are two that I know of. And just um, if you uh, search out War Against the Mafia uh, by Dan Dorsky, uh, you can put in my name or my campy. It'll pop right up. There's a real good description there, and you can pre-order the book. It's coming out in uh, November. And uh, it's a great read if you, if you love mafia stories, if you like true crime, anything like that, thrillers. Outstanding. Dan Dorsky, I want to thank you for your service to the country, for doing what you've done, and for joining us tonight. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on, Rich. You bet. Hope to talk to you again soon. Folks, we're coming right back with more for you out there in America. Don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. Congratulations, Thank somebody. You, it's always nice to check. I like to see, <laughs> even if they're friends, I like to see how are they doing? Are people listening, right? That's right. 
but you're, you're doing great. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. And we continue our conversation this evening. Uh, a lot to get into. There's a, um, a story that says that the uh, average American hasn't received a raise in the last three years. Now, this is interesting um, because, you know, Joe Biden says, Bidenomics, it's working, right? Isn't when he does this weird whispering thing he does? And uh, Joe Biden Biden says, everything is fantastic, but the average American employee hasn't received a raise in three years. And this new survey says a grim finding uh, is what's in store for the report. Now, the uh, newly released survey from one poll says 2,000 Americans find that they have not had a raise in the last three years. Uh, Listen to this. Only 4% said that they received a raise this year. 9% said they got a raise at least a year ago. 22% said it had been two years. And 37% said it had been three years. Let that sink in. So fascinating to me that we have, um, you know, the Biden administration just touting this wonderful economy. And again, I'm not saying that we're in a shambles. I'm not, right? I, I you know, people I know are still going on vacations and albeit maybe not the vacation they wanted to go on. Some people aren't going to Tuscany, but, you know, they're taking that vacation to Florida or wherever they're going. So I get that. I mean, it's not dire straits yet, but who's who's buying right now, right? Who's doing the investment property buying? Big banks are doing it. And they've kind of slowed down at that. Most regular uh, mom and pops that want to buy a one-family, two-family home or some sort of mixed-use property to get some rental income, it's not happening as quickly. There's uh, the the inflation and the remedy for inflation, which is raising interest rates, has really kind of chilled that segment of the economy. And if we continue to have high interest rates, I think we'll continue to see stagnation in those areas. It doesn't mean it's going to die or stop. Investors that do that for a living are going to continue to do that for a living because they have cash. So they'll be able to make better offers and do less financing. But my point is, it's not as attainable for everybody else, right? It just, it it's not. I wish it was. So, you know, it, it's, I guess, concerning, right? But you've got Joe Biden and he's at the White House today and he says, we have the strongest economy in the world the lowest inflation amongst the other economies. And, you know, I guess if you want to talk about, you know, we suck, but we suck less than the other people. <laughs> that seems to be what I hear. Listen to this. Let me close with this. We faced some pretty tough times in recent years. A pandemic that took more than a million of our friends and neighbors. A million fewer people sitting at our dining room or kitchen tables. Now, he's talking about kitchen tables here, right? Americans, we've faced some uncertain times economically over the last few years. Yeah, it happens to be the few years that you've been in office, sir. Isn't that interesting how Joe Biden fails to kind of uh, acknowledge it? Hey, since I got here, I've made a, a world of hurt for you guys. But but you're talking about it around those kitchen tables. Unbelievable. Go ahead. People we raised and loved, people we grew up with, gone. The worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. It wasn't that long ago that 20 million Americans were out of work. 
But the American people didn't give up. They never give up. They've never given up. And today we have the strongest economy in the world, the lowest inflation rate among the major economies, 13.5 million new jobs. You heard me say it before, and I'm going to keep saying it. My dad said a job's about a lot more than a paycheck. It's about your dignity. It's about respect. It's about being able to look your kid in the eye and say, honey, it's going to be okay and mean it. That dignity is coming back to places all across the country. Well, listen, one thing I'll agree with Joe El Baboso Biden about is his dad was right. A job is a lot more than just a job and about a paycheck. It is about dignity. People want to have that pride of knowing that they're holding it down in life. They're doing what they got to do. And people want to do better in life. And a lot of people right now, when I don't have the poll in front of me, but I've seen like four or five of them already. None of them show the result to match what Joe Biden's saying. People, when asked, do you feel like you're better off today than you were four years ago? The, the numbers are overwhelming. I think it's 60, higher than 60% of people saying, no, I don't feel better today than I did before. Or at least than I did four years ago. So, I mean, when I read a story like the one I was just sharing with you uh, in The Hill about Americans not getting a raise for the last three years, I'm not saying anybody's due a raise or owed a raise. People earn their raises. But it's difficult to earn a raise when you've got companies that are shutting down stores in San Francisco. It's one of the top places, but other places because of all the loss they're enduring because of bad policies. Right. This is a political problem. People think, oh, politics isn't everything. No, politics really spills over into so many parts of life. Dick's Sporting Goods, um, Bloom, not Bloomingdale's, Nordstrom, uh, this other big box store that just shut down in, in San Francisco. And there's been a ton of them. When these stores are shutting down, they're not doing it because we've got the world's strongest economy and blah, blah, blah. I'm a baboso. Right. No, that's not what it's about. It's because they can't afford to endure the political mess that they're going through having people go in and rob their stores. And yeah, they're going to write it off as losses, but guess what? There's other losses that go with that, like all, all the lost revenue that they're not getting. So what happens? You have to lay people off. And we've seen that happen. We've seen it happen with big employers like Disney. We've seen it happen with big employers like Amazon, big employers that are laying people off because they're not, when people are making a ton of money, they don't lay people off. Now, yes, artificial intelligence is going to replace some jobs. But ultimately, if you're doing well and you're really busy, you open up another part of your business. You hire more people to handle more of the business that you have to do. This is just common sense. And for Biden to sit there and just try and blow smoke, again, I just, I, I really don't like it. I, I mean, I don't like him to begin with. I understand uh, I'd be polite to him if he ever agreed to come on the show, and I would love to interview Joe Biden. But I think he needs to be more forthright with the American people. He's got to come out and say, look, we're not where we need to be, but we're on our way to getting there, and here's what we're going to do. And I'm going to work on making sure that when you're around that kitchen table like my dad and his stories uh, about his fire in his kitchen and everything else he likes to talk about, I got her legs, you know, all those crazy things he says. Maybe he could say, and you know, I'm going to work on making sure that we bring inflation down so that those of you who don't own a home can, can buy a home and can afford to buy a home and get into a 30-year fixed note 
uh, or you know those of you that have a home and, and want to refinance it so you maybe can buy a second home or send your kid to college or do whatever you've got to do. You're able to make those moves. You're able to access the, 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 the biggest investment you've ever made, which is your home. And that's not happening. And I, we can't put it all on Biden. I mean, I, I, arguably, you know, times have changed. But we can't use the times have changed argument to the extreme that we give Biden a pass. So much of what we're going through today is the result of Biden's policies, the, the result of Biden's, in my opinion, vast ineptitude on the, this issue and so many others. And I hope the American people remember that when they get to the ballot box. Anyway, folks, there's more to come straight ahead. Don't move a muscle. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. about the FBI and what they were doing pre 9-11, going after gangsters, going after organized crime, chasing bank robbers, etc. Uh, but after 9-11, it became the counterterrorism extravaganza. And I'm not criticizing that. I think that's important. You know, we, we, um, we need that. But what would you say if I told you that the FBI is now storing data, data including your DNA, at a pace that rivals, guess who? China. China holding 21 million samples of DNA and counting. China and the U.S. are collecting the same amount of their population's DNA profiles, and the FBI wants to double its budget to get even more. How about that? That's according to Ken Klippenstein at The Intercept, which is a very progressive, uh, left-leaning um, a uh, outlet. But um, listen, one thing we might agree on, The Intercept and I, is that the FBI should not be collecting data. And maybe we don't agree. Maybe they're saying they should, but I'm saying they shouldn't. The FBI has amassed 21.7 million DNA profiles, equivalent to about 7% of the U.S. population. So again, now think of that. The FBI is the police. The police, when they arrest people, they get fingerprints. Now, it, it sounds crazy to me that 7% of the population has been arrested by the FBI. Well, the FBI aims to nearly double its current budget of $56 million for this DNA collection catalog with an additional 53.1 million, according to their budget request for fiscal year 2024. The requested resources will help the FBI process the rapidly increasing number of DNA samples collected by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. They say, you know, this is what they need to do. Back in April, they, uh, in a statement to Congress, they explained that um, several factors had to do with this, right? Uh, and the reason they needed to, quote, significantly expand the DNA processing requirements of the FBI. Uh, Director Ray, uh, in his testimony to Congress, said the FBI collected around 90,000 samples a month, over 10 times the historic sample volume, and expected that number to swell to about 120,000 a month. 
totaling 1.5 million new DNA samples a year. The staggering increase uh, raised questions among civil libertarians. Um, Here's a quote. Listen to this. When we're talking about rapid expansion like this, it's getting us closer and closer to a universal DNA database. That's Vera Edelman. She's a staff attorney for the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Association, uh, which specializes in, um, you know, going after anything that threatens your liberties. Although usually they're on the wrong side of things lately, but this is one I think they should uh, they should keep going. And this rapid growth is a is a problem in my opinion. Again, now if you're going to tell me, well, there's a massive amount of crimes, nobody processes DNA like the FBI. So with all these extra crimes that we have in all these different places, that's why we're seeing this influx. Then I would say, how about we spend some of that money on limiting crime? Great, we have to deal with DNA. I get it. Same thing if you told me, you know, well, the reason we can't adjudicate the people at the borders because we don't have enough immigration judges. We need, I don't know, $10 trillion to, to get new immigration judges. And, of course, I'm exaggerating on that number. But, again, I think conventional wisdom tells you maybe we should consider shutting down the border <laughs> and, you know, putting more people there to keep people away from this country and from getting into this country rather than trying to get more judges. And again, I'm not saying we shouldn't get more judges. I think we should. We should probably triple the amount of judges we have because there's been a 10-year backlog as long as I've been following politics. And that's been almost 20 years. So uh, crazy to think that we don't want to fix the problem. We want to have a better solution to dealing with the ongoing problem. How stupid is that? But anyway, uh, the FBI began building this DNA database in 1990. By 1998, it helped create a national database called uh, combined DNA index system or CODIS that spanned all 50 states. And look, this is what they used to crack the cold cases, to catch rapists, all that. I get it. Each state maintains its own data uh, database with police and other authorities submitting samples based on their state's rules. CODIS uh, allowed all the states to search across the entire country. At first, the collection of this data was limited to DNA from people convicted of crimes, which makes sense, or evidence that they collect from crime scenes and from unidentified remains. Uh, And even those categories were controversial at the time. But CODIS uh, was launched nationally, and most states didn't submit DNA from all people convicted of felonies. So now they want to expand this, right? Today, police have the authority to take DNA samples from anyone sentenced for a felony charge. In 28 states, police can take DNA samples from suspects arrested for felonies, but who have not been convicted of any crime. In some cases, uh, police officer plea deals uh, reduce felony charges to misdemeanor offenses in exchange for DNA samples. Look at that. So we're making plea deals just to get a sample of your DNA. So that tells you they want your DNA. Police are even acquiring DNA samples from unwitting people, and that is where uh, I think it's uh, problematic, right? Because police are getting DNA data from from people that have no idea that they're giving it to. Isn't that interesting? So, uh, again, uh, the attorney, Lewis, says that this changed massively. It changed the rules of the game. Now you have to be a person of interest to end up in a database, not just a convicted felon. And I think that's interesting. Right? So if somebody comes to me and says, hey, we, you know, we suspect that you might have been involved in the commission of a crime. Uh, we want your DNA. And then I'm cleared. They're keeping my DNA. I don't want them to have my DNA. I didn't do anything, right? And I think that's only fair. So this is um, 
this is problematic to say the least. So now you know what else the FBI is up to. Uh, again, disappointing but not surprising. Makes me think that this government is getting way too much power, way too much control. And one thing I can tell you is you, me, and any of our neighbors, we don't owe the government anything other than the tax that we're supposed to pay them. And even that, I think we, we pay a little too much. But they owe me, right? They owe me safety and security. That's what I pay my taxes for. I don't owe them a DNA sample. I don't owe them the time of day. And I feel like the, the roles are getting reversed very quickly. And uh, that's not good. No bueno. Anyway, folks, uh, looking forward to your calls and more as we move forward. The phone number, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. We've got Open Phone America coming up in the top of the next hour. You can get your calls in now if you'd like. Uh, special invitation to first-time callers because it's Friday night, and we try to get in as many new callers on Friday nights as we can. So I'm looking forward to speaking with you as well. Again, that number, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. People are very critical of people saying, you know, everybody's looking at communists, this, communist at that. We don't have communists. We've got socialists. We've got progressives. But we don't have a communism problem. And listen, I would say uh, you're, you're right that we don't have one yet. But where do you go with, um, with this trajectory towards progressivism and socialism but not for communism? Right? That's exactly where you end up. And – there's always a, a stark reminder when you have friends like I do, like my buddy who owned the Cuban restaurant. He sold the restaurant and he went on vacation to, uh, I mean, he can't even say vacation because he was telling me about his visit to Cuba. He went to visit his mother and he was there helping family and he's helped building, you know, their home and adding air conditioning because it's always over 100 degrees lately in the summertime. And he was telling me, he said, you know, he says, you know, I, I'm back and I'm glad I just saw him earlier today. And he said, I'm glad to be back. I'm, I'm grateful to be here. And he said, you know, this is such a good country. And and it, it's great to see that perspective from people. But it's it's fascinating to me that we don't spend enough time realizing how difficult it is when you have to go and buy, uh, buy whatever's available at the supermarket owned by the government. When everything you do is owned by the government. Just imagine that. It's not a mom and pop anymore. It's Joel Baboso Biden and the government who runs everything. That's why we have to stay away from the government. Like Reagan said, get off my back and out of my pocket. Folks, Open Phone America is coming up. We're taking your calls on every topic. The crazier, the better. It's Friday night. I'd love to hear a good story. 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. Open Phone America starts right now. I'm Rich Valdez.
live from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, by the way, and happy to be here with you guys tonight. It's a wonderful Friday evening. Our telephone number, if you want to join us, 833-482-5337, 833-4VALDEZ. We're going to get to your calls momentarily. I wanted to go over a few different things because there is a, uh, a, a ton of stories that throughout the week, um, the uh, producers in the control room do a great job of sending me off-the-wall stories and, you know, sometimes I say yay, sometimes I say nay, because some of them are a little bit, they're just a little bit, you know, heavy, if you will. And um, sometimes a little too heavy. But it's Friday and it's late night. It's midnight in New York. It's the final hour. And I'm going to I'm gonna attempt to cover some of the crazy here because this stuff is crazy. Now, we talked about a bunch of things tonight, and we're going to continue those discussions. And it, always, if you've missed any part of the program, I want to encourage you, really do. Take a minute and go to richvaldezamericaatnight.com. The reason I want you to go there is because I, people text me all the time. They call me. They send me messages on Instagram or on Facebook or anywhere else. And they're like, hey, when is this show on? How can I do it? Where can I tell people to listen? And it, we're on hundreds of stations. I think the number's hovering around 300. And I don't know every single station. I, mean, I have a list of those stations, but I don't know where you are. The best way to do it is go to richvaldezamericaatnight.com. You can hit the Listen Live button, and you can listen live. If we're not live, you'll hear the most up-to-date show. And you can also share those shows with people that you want to share it with. You can also download the show so you could listen to it whenever you like, and you could subscribe to the podcast, which is a recording of the show that you can hear anything you may have missed. So um, just wanted to put that out there because I get that question a lot. And I want to make sure that we're covering every uh, every angle here. Now, I wanted to um, bring your attention to this crazy story here. It's a series of crazy stories. Let me see how I start here. There was a gun fired at a White Sox game. How did the gun get in there? The gun was smuggled into the stadium. Check this out. In a roll, or in between the rolls, of a woman's belly fat. Yeah, that's a real story. Mm -hmm. Listen to this. So, you've got this gun that was smuggled in. The investigation into a shooting last Friday, in which two women were struck by gunfire during the White Sox athletics game at Guaranteed Rate Field in Chicago, came to an almost unbelievable conclusion as to how the gun got into the ballpark. Both of the wounded women, ages 42 and 26, were expected to recover from the shooting. And police say the 42-year-old sustained a gunshot wound to the leg. The 26-year-old had a graze wound to her abdomen. And the report by WGN in Chicago reported that the White Sox security sources say that in the check of their security tape, Neither of the injured women set off metal detectors as they entered the stadium. 
An attorney for the 42-year-old woman said that her client did not bring any firearm into the, the ballpark. She denies bringing it in. Officials have said little about where the bullets came from if someone brought a gun into the stadium. But Fred Waller, interim superintendent of the Chicago Police Department, said Monday that investigators have nearly ruled out the possibility that the shots came from outside the ballpark. So, here's a quote. We're dispelling a lot of things, uh, Chief uh, Superintendent Waller said during the uh, press conference. A shot coming from outside is something that we've almost completely dispelled. We're looking at every possible angle here. Waller said the police department uh, initially requested that the ball game be halted after the shooting, and the White Sox subsequently uh, defended their decision to um, continue the game. But yeah, that that this is how it was um, smuggled in, in the role of a woman's belly fat. Now, this it leads you down the rabbit hole to who's hiding what where? Now, this is really where it becomes really tricky. Um, I don't know, interesting, uh, I dare say. Listen to this. This is another story. Now, this is a chess player. Oh, boy. Here we go. A chess uh, prodigy. His name is Hans Niemann. And he just settled his legal fight over an adult toy used for self-pleasuring and saying that he used this toy in order to cheat. Now, follow along here. The New York Post says that he wiggled his way out of this one. A teenage chess prodigy who was recently marred by claims that he used a vibrating bead in his rear-end cavity to cheat during a high-stakes chess match has been partially vindicated after he and his opponent agreed to resolve this big legal battle. He's 19 years old, Hans Niemann, and he uh, was going uh, against his rival, Norwegian Grandmaster Magnus Carlsen, 31 years old. And he alleged that the American used a adult sex toy to cheat during the tournament, saying that he had this inside of his anal cavity and that someone with a remote was using this to communicate with him, almost like via Morse code, like using the vibrations to indicate how he should play the game. I'm not making this up. I swear it's in the New York Post. So the investigation into Neiman's play uh, was conducted by Chess.com, and they stated that Neiman likely received illegal assistance in more than 100 online games as recently as 2020. Now, Mr. Neiman, who uh, has denied this stuff, uh, you know, very vociferously, he uh, sued them and said that they were defaming him, saying that he was using these beads inside of himself to che- to cheat. Now, months after this uh, cheating allegation and the legal drama, uh, all parties have agreed to drop the legal fight, according to chess.com, and they announced that earlier this week, saying, I look forward to competing against Magnus in chess rather than in court. That's what Mr. Neiman said. And I just think this is pretty insane, right? I mean, of all the things you can accuse somebody of, using a adult bead toy in your rear end cavity to cheat that is some crazy stuff, but that was in fact the case uh, that uh, that that they that they alleged here. Now that opens the door to something entirely new, uh, something that I had no idea was a real thing. Somebody sent this to me. I, I thought it was a joke. I thought it was like a a fake story, but um, apparently this is actually a thing, and it's on the rise. 
where people are are doing um, this more often than we think. <laughs> now, and I don't mean cheating on chess. I mean the way they were cheating on chess. So let me just pull this up here because this is interesting. What's the headline? Because I had received this and I thought, I don't know what this is called. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know that this is. Uh, I wasn't sure like that it was a thing. But there's an article, again, New York Post. Somebody sent it to me from another outlet, Hollywood something or other. But the New York Post headline's funny. Party poopers, hospitalizations for foreign objects in rectums are on the rise. Crazy, right? Nearly 4,000 people are hospitalized with foreign objects in their rectum each year, according to a new study published last month in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine and saying that many of these items are adult uh, self-pleasure toys. Researchers at the University of Rochester in New York were stumped by the little uh, epidemiologic information on this condition, so they decided to analyze emergency reports from 2012 to 2021. The study, the first of its kind to nationally represent this data on rectal foreign bodies in the United States, found that 38,948 emergency department visits uh, based on 885 cases during that time frame were amongst what they're calling party poopers older than 15 years old. Wow. Researchers uh, scoured the National Electronic Injury um, Database to figure out what was going on here. So this is a real thing that Nearly 70% 70 of patients, excuse me, were male. 40% of these patients required hospitalization. Of these reported cases, the average age of a patient visiting the emergency room was 43 years old. And um, some of the things that they're finding, uh, like I said, uh, adult um, toys for self-pleasure that vibrate or that are beads or other toys, balls, marbles, as well as drugs were part of what were found stuck, lodged in there that they couldn't get out. This is a pain in the butt, this story, I got to tell you. I can't believe that it was a real story. I I Googled it to see if it was, and there it was, a real medical journal putting out this information. But I had to share it with you because while it was crass and a little bit off color, I have to say, I, I really didn't think this was a real thing, but it's a real thing. And apparently it's happening a lot more than we expect. So Um, I don't know if you want to share a story about a pain in the butt story that you might have, but I think this is crazy and I'd love your reaction to it as well as anything else that's on the agenda for tonight. So whether it's smuggling guns and rolls of belly fat or anything else, give me a call 833-482-5337. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. Valdez. That's 
5337-833-4VALDES. That's Valdez with an S. Some of the stories that come across here, I got to tell you, they're crazy. Anyway, looking forward to your calls, 833-4-VALDEZ. Let's go to Doc in Wilmington, Delaware, W-D-E-L. Doc, you're on with Rich Valdez. Welcome, sir. Rich, thanks again for a wonderful show, and thanks, thanks to you and your wonderful guy. Call us for taking my call, as always. Uh, Rich, Thank you. you are right on the money about the excesses of the FBI and the national security state in this country. Mm-hmm. I would urge you to look at the writings of, of Senator Robert Taft in the 50s and 60s and in the speeches and writings of Senator Frank Church of the Intelligence Committee in the, in the 70s when both warned us of the, exit, of the excesses of the national security state. I, for one, because of my the fact that I had a, a security background in the Army, and number two of my travels and the fact that I own large sums of firearms, large amounts of firearms, excuse me, I, for one, have have files with files, plural, with several agencies. I know this because I'm a target shooter. A couple of the guys I shoot with are current and retired FBI agents. When they ran my social security number, they said, Doc, you have a heck of a large file because of what you've done and where you've gone. The problem is a lot of this stuff is hearsay evidence. It's gossip, and it has nothing to do with reality. Right, and, and you've uh, never been a criminal, right? No, don't ever. Right, so, don't even have a speeding ticket anywhere in the country. And I'm 69 years old. That's my point. So, it, why would the government? What right does this government have to have this information on you? And I'm not talking about licensure or anything like that. But I'm saying, you know, keeping a file on somebody for something other than than they should shouldn't be allowed. I don't want the government to have a record of me. You have my tax records. They have enough records. Why would they need more, Doc? I agree, but here's the here's the problem because of where I've traveled whom I've spoken to abroad, even though I've been totally forthcoming when the authorities have asked me. Who are you hanging out with, Putin? No, not at all. No way. I've been to Russia. The only countries I have been into my time are uh, are North Korea and Iran. I've been in Iraq. I've, I've been everywhere else in the world. And you went time. there for work? No, I went there. I went there for I partially work in the 70s in the Cold War, but I went there just as a tourist in Russia. I wanted to see what it was like before Putin came to power. Did you bump into Bernie Sanders? Bernard Sanders. Pardon me? Did you bump into Bernie Sanders when you were in Russia? <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> no, sir. No, sir. But I think I think that the government's out of control right now. And I think that they're they're weaponized the FBI. They're going after the, the right and who they think is the far right, the people that are disrupting this country, and they're not anything. They're Trump supporters at Al. They they're into the Second Amendment. I had an interesting conversation with a fellow who said he voted for Trump locally. He is a PR, a Philadelphia refugee down in Delaware now. He came here so that he could find a better life for his family, better schools, and he owns firearms. And he told me that he voted for Trump because he could only keep his guns. And I think that's totally legitimate. Now, is that guy going to have a file on him? Who knows? You know, Doc, uh, it's interesting you say that because President Trump today was just talking about that. I've got a clip of him talking about the... uh, the war that is being waged on on um, the radical left is waging war, a crusade against America's hunters, fishermen and sportsmen. Check this out. For nearly three years, Crooked Joe Biden has waged a radical left crusade against America's hunters, fishermen and sportsmen. If you are a fisherman or a hunter or a sportsman, I can't even imagine you could vote for this group of maniacs. They want to take away everything. The far-left environmental fascists running Joe Biden's Fish and Wildlife Service 
have needlessly restricted lead ammunition and fishing tackle in large swaths of the United States. You can't get tackle. You can't get bullets the way you want them, the old-fashioned way, the way that really is effective and works. It's a backdoor effort to end hunting forever and to take away your guns. They want to take away your guns, and this is the way they're doing it. They don't want to give you ammunition. You can have your guns because somehow they failed at that during my time, but they want to take away your ammunition. The gun doesn't do much without ammunition. He's right. And exactly what your friend, PR, <laughs> I'm thinking Puerto Rican, uh, Philadelphia refugee, he's exactly right. Th- this is a slippery slope that people, I think, uh, give the government or the left or whomever you want to make the enemy here, whoever it is, they give them too much credit thinking, oh, no, they just they want to look out for little kids because guns are killing kids or guns. No, he's exactly right. It's been hard to get ammo for quite a while. It goes away. Then it comes back. They want to make it more difficult. Every state is trying to limit how many rounds you could have with the same argument. What do you need a round? The, the, what do you need a clip that holds 30 rounds for? What do you need a clip that holds 15 rounds for? Now in New Jersey, I think it's up to they want to go to six or five. I mean, it, what's next? Six shooter? What's next? Pea shooter? They're trying to make sure that you can't do anything with the gun that you're legally allowed to have. This is extra constitutional. I would say it's unconstitutional, and I hope that it gets resolved. But, Doc, I think you're 100% right. Thank you, Rich. You bet, brother. And, folks, we're going to continue with your calls and more straight ahead. We've got calls from North Carolina, South Carolina, California, and we're going to get to all of you as well. Plus, uh, let me give you the phone number, 833-482-5337. And it just, it, it fascinates me. It really does how some people can just look at the same information, the same data, the same scenario, and not have, uh, you know, I don't expect anybody to have group think. I don't expect everybody to agree with me or think like I do. But when you, if if they're telling you the government's trying to limit this or they're making it difficult for you to, to do that, doesn't it seem to to make sense that you should at least consider the other side and their argument? I mean, really, you know, that's why I love that that press conference that happened earlier this week where the, the sheriff, uh, after that shooting, he took his gun out of his holster and he put it on the table and he said, this is my gun. And he said, I'm going to put it there and it's not going to do anything because it's not people that uh, it's not guns that kill people. It's people that kill people. And that was a great point. Anyway, folks, the music means I got to take a quick pause and come right back. We're going to get to your calls, 833-4-Valdez, 833-4-Valdez, or social media, at Rich Valdez with an S. Don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. We're coming right back. America. Welcome back. Now, check this out. So it's Labor Day weekend, right? Everybody, I know that you're either on your way to doing what you're doing or you're not doing anything because you got to work or you're staying home or whatever it is. Maybe you just you're listening to the show tonight or maybe you're listening on the podcast the next day because you're hanging out doing, you know, preparing for your grilling or whatever. But Labor Day weekend, we get to celebrate the day where, uh, you know, we, we take a day off to celebrate all the hard work. 
And and that's cool because, man, you know, I love a good day off personally. I don't. I try not to take them. I, I have not taken one here as of yet. Uh, but I, you know, I like I like to. <laughs> I like to take days off. To, days off are nice. Uh, I take only the days that they tell me you can't talk on the microphone today, sir. And I say why, and they say because there's no producers. Like, oh my goodness. So it's usually the the federal holidays that are on our calendar. But everybody's going to get ready and do their grilling and do whatever they're going to do for Labor Day. And the police department in New York City is going to use drones to monitor backyard parties this weekend. And people are thinking, why are you spying on my party? So just imagine if you're in my house, we have a little bit of uh, salsa, a little merengue. I also like the reggaeton. I don't know if you know reggaeton. It's that mix of uh, Spanish music and reggae music. It's uh, it's quite the sensation. Bad Bunny's kind of leading the way on that. Uh, pretty uh, controversial artist. But uh, that's what's going to be playing in my backyard. And... And, you know, we're going to have a good time. And it's actually not going to be in my backyard. I'm going to my brother's. But the point I'm making is the last thing I want to see is some police drone hanging out over us, watching us do what we do. And I can only imagine how in some parts of the country where, uh, like where I'm going, I'm going up into the mountains, the Pocono Mountain region, where my brother has a small farm. And, uh, you know, around there, something's flying over your house. You you can shoot it down. (laughs) So I can't imagine... Uh, people in, in, in New York City taking this very well. I'm pretty sure you're going to see beer bottles flying at these things and everything else. But uh, that's what, right. The NYPD is going to be uh, using their um, unmanned aircrafts in response to complaints about large gatherings, including private events and anything else that they could get their hands on over Labor Day. Now, listen, you know me. I support the boys in blue. My brothers were uh, NYPD and are retired now. And uh, nothing but respect for the police. But you don't need to be in my backyard to do your thing. You know, if there's a problem in my backyard, my neighbor can come over to me and say, hey, there's a problem. They can call the cops if they have a problem. We don't need a drone, you know, hovering like a fly on the wall, seeing, you know, how uh, how medium I take my stake. No, thank you. No, thank you. I'm going to pass. Hard pass on that. The government needs to be checked. I don't need any more government intrusion. So NYPD, Eric Adams, you can keep your drones to yourself. And that's not uh, the full extent of it. There's more. Uh, but I'll get into that next story about what the cops did to this one guy. And uh, it's a good story. But I want to get to your calls. So let's uh, let's tap into the phone lines here. Let's go to Moore Park, California. Let's go to Tim. He's listening on KVTA. Tim in Moore Park, California. Welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez. Did Bob Dole lose U.S. president because Haley Barber said O.J. Simpson is guilty? And do Republicans lose the black vote if they say O.J. Simpson is guilty? I was outside of the courthouse of the criminal trial in downtown L.A. There were mm. a million black people, and when they announced that he was not guilty, every one of them cheered. Right. Well, again, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I remember watching that O.J. Simpson chase just like everybody else, and it was fascinating. Right, It was like watching cops, but live on every news channel across America, the white Bronco that just wouldn't stop. And, and, and then the subsequent trial that was like, wow, you know, and if the glove don't fit, you must acquit, right? And then you had the cop and all of that commentary, and it was crazy. I honestly don't know. Uh, but... I don't think Republicans haven't uh, haven't had the black vote in a very long time, like into the like late 1800s. Uh, it's been a long time since we've we've done that. But I can say I think Republicans have made more gains with the black vote than they have ever. 
And uh, I can tell you an interesting story, Tim, that a buddy of mine who I grew up with, uh, I didn't grow up in a bad neighborhood, but uh, some of my friends made bad decisions and went into the, you know, illegal ways of life. And one of my friends who dedicated himself to being a crack dealer, he, uh, he got in trouble and he went to, he went to jail. And I remember he called me from jail and he was like, you know, I made some mistakes and I'm here and what I did was stupid. But he said, I wanted to tell you, you were right. And I said, right about what? And he said, well, you know, we went to lunch before I got locked up and you were telling me that, you know, that, that Trump was, uh, that Trump was going to win and Trump was the right guy and Trump won and he felt, and he thought Trump was, you know, the worst person ever. But it turned out, he said, you know, I was in jail and I was in um, the, the Hispanic section of the jail. And then they moved me to the black section of the jail. And when he went to the uh, black section of the jail with like, you know, everything's run by gangs. So he went from like the Latin uh, MS-13, Latin Kings section to like the Bloods and the Crips and uh, the, the, uh, the other gangs that are there. And he said that he'd never met so many people talking about politics than he did at that time. And everybody was praising Trump for the uh, First Step Act, where he uh, allowed people that were convicted of nonviolent offenses to have uh, their sentences commuted and whatnot. Um, commuted is not the right word, but this was very interesting. And I have to tell you, it was um, it was an eye opener for me to think that there were people in jail that didn't have the right to vote that were actively supporting Trump. And he told me these men were calling their their girlfriends and their wives back home and telling them, listen, make sure you go out there and vote for my man, Trump. And I just thought that was such a remarkable story coming straight from the horse's mouth, right? Or directly from my friend who was calling me on a call that started like this. You have a, a call from uh, whatever, whatever correctional facility. And it was just surreal to me that that was the case. So I say all of that to say, yeah, I think it's uh, remarkable the way Republicans have made inroads. And I think if they keep it up, we're going to see more of that. Uh, all you have to do is spend a couple of minutes on social media to see these videos all over the country where it's mainly black men. I see them all over the place where they constantly are saying we, we need to bring Trump back, that they're not happy with the situation they're in. And I think a lot of them took uh, offense as an affront when Biden told um, the um, nationally syndicated morning show host uh, Charlemagne the God. And he said, if you don't know if you're voting for Trump or for me, then, then you're not black, right? I think a lot of people were actually offended by that. Maybe Mr. Charlemagne the God was not as offended by it, but I think a lot of his listeners were. And uh, it's just very telling. So we'll see how it goes in the next election, wh whomever the Republican nominee is. But I have a feeling that we're going to do better with African-Americans. Uh, as time goes by, I think more and more people, because ultimately the issues aren't racial. Right. I, I, irrespective of one's skin color, I think the issues speak for themselves and people are ultimately going to say these issues matter to me. These these are the people that are standing up uh, against the woke indoctrination in the classroom and, and, and many other things that we've seen just go crazy in the last three or four years. And I think we're going to see lots of new and different ethnicities stepping up, saying, you know what, we, we're going the other way because the Democrat Party just isn't it. It's not what it once was. And I think people are dissatisfied. So I don't know. Maybe even OJ will vote for Trump. We'll find out. We'll see what happens. Anyway, Tim, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Big shout out to Moore Park, California. KVTA, great station. I want to visit KVTA. If anybody at the station is listening, I plan to be in California in a couple of months, and hopefully I could stop by and say hello. Anyway, there is more to come straight ahead. We're going to get to the rest of your calls and more. 833 
4825337833 Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now 8334Valdez. That's 8334825337. 8334Valdez. That's Valdez with an S. a budding radio star, by the way. Richie Valdez is terrific. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. All right, America, welcome back. And uh, I want to talk about this real quick before we go back to the phones. And again, uh, you got the number. Give us a call, 833-4-VALDEZ. A man was arrested uh, months after... That's not the one. That's a good story, but that's not the one. I wanted to read the one. Oh, what happened to this? Hold on. Bear with me, folks. It's live radio, and it froze up on me. This man... Jeez. That's terrible. Anyway, so the guy... Uh, while I find this thing, maybe um, the producer can email it to me. But the guy, he he gets in trouble for warning people that there's a speed trap, and and he gets in big trouble for this, right? So he ends up suing the government, and voila, he wins. And I, it it makes me think, you know, as much as again, I'm so pro cop, I really am, but um, he won a fifty thousand dollars settlement. Because cops in Delaware blocked him from warning people of a speed trap that was coming up. Listen to this. So the Delaware State Police has agreed to pay this guy $50,000 to resolve a federal lawsuit filed by the guy. He said troopers violated his constitutional rights by preventing him from warning other motorists about the speed trap. The judgment was entered uh, just on Friday. In favor of Jonathan Gessford, excuse me, it's late here in New York, 54 years old, who said in the lawsuit that police unlawfully prevented him from engaging in peaceful protest by standing on the roadside and holding up a small cardboard sign reading radar ahead. (laughs) After Mr. Gessford raised a middle finger at troopers (laughs) while driving away from an initial encounter, He was stopped and cited for improper use of a hand signal. The charge was later dropped. The uh, episode happened in March of 22, and it was captured on cell phone videos taken by Gesford and included in his complaint, as well as on dashboard cameras in the vehicles of the troopers that uh, pulled him over and arrested him. Uh, The police dash cam uh, audio captures the the troopers, uh, not arrested him, uh, ticketed him, excuse me, the police dash cam audio captures the troopers laughing and giggling at the notion of citing Gesford for using an improper hand turn signal because of the obscene gesture. He wasn't making a turn, Douglas says. The cell phone video shows troopers approaching Mr. Gesford, who was standing in a grassy area next to the shoulder on Route 13, north of Dover, uh, Dover Delaware. 
Douglas told Gasford, the trooper told Gasford that he was disrupting traffic. And uh, ultimately, they said he was a liar. Uh, he told the trooper, you're a liar. I'm on the side of the road. So anyway, fast forward. They, they go to uh, they get into this little altercation and voila, it goes to court. Right. They, they tell him, listen, you want to take it to court? Go to court. So he does. He takes it to court and he ends up winning a $50,000 settlement. So uh, sometimes you can fight City Hall, right? I, I just thought that was a, such an interesting story that you you would think that if you see a fellow motorist on the side of the ro- road with a uh, cardboard piece of uh, box, you know, ripped out and writing in marker, radar ahead, you would think, I would think, I would laugh, and then I would think, yeah, this guy, you know, he's probably telling the truth. I should slow down. And you would think that the cops might appreciate that because people are going to slow down as a result. But instead, he they gave him a hard way to go, and uh, and he won at the end. So I, I think, you know, I love it when a little guy wins. I really do. I don't think the cops lost here. I think he just, uh, you know, he stood his ground. And ultimately, I'm always in favor of our constitutional rights. Anyway, I'll put this out on social media so you could read the, all the details at Rich Valdez on Twitter and all the rest of the social media. Let's continue with your phone calls. Let's see. We've got Albany, New York, Charleston, South Carolina, Newport, North Carolina, Atlanta, Georgia. Let's go to Joshua on WGKA. Go right ahead. How you doing, man? Doing great. What's on your mind, brother? Thank you for a wonderful week. I so appreciate you, and I want to thank you for providing me with one of the uh, best unexpected laughs. Uh, earlier this week, I had heard the Mitch McConnell uh, sample, but not the entire part of it. It was kind of broken up when I first heard it. Yeah, I'm not making fun of the man, but when you guys played it back, I was taking a full sip of water, and then I heard those crickets, <laughs> and I did a, I did a total spit take here in my kitchen, listening <laughs> to you, and had the best laugh of the day. So thank you so much for that moment oh, of bet. levity and all. And a hard week. And also in your discussions earlier about cars and how things have changed, I just wish that those car talk brothers were still around. And, I think uh, they are. I, of- I, they may not be on the station you're listening to because they used to be on in New York, too. And I used to listen to those guys. Uh, and maybe it was not the same guys because there's a couple of big car shows in radio. But I used to hear them like Saturday morning super early when I would go get uh, my cafe con leche, my espresso. And uh, I love that those guys are pros. You know, I just interview car guys. Those guys were car guys, and they were like interviewing each other and, and just giving all the answers in the world. They knew everything about every car. And you're right. The, those car guys are terrific. Thank you so much. You take care. Have a wonderful weekend. You bet. Thanks, Joshua. I appreciate your kind words and uh, appreciate you listening. Folks, we're going to continue right after this. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, we continue. And there's a story about a guy that literally was walking down the street, tripped over a bag, and it was five grand in it. I'm going to get to that on our next show because I want to get your reactions as to what you would do if you tripped over a bag of cash. And I'll give you the full story then. I just wanted to put it out there now because I don't want to forget between now and um, our next program, which will be right after Labor Day. And we have a, a, a great best of lineup for you on Monday night, so make sure you tune in for that. Plus, we have the 
Saturday and Sunday show, which airs on a bunch of stations as well. And that's a four-hour show instead of a three-hour show, which is the best of Rich Valdez, America at Night. Uh, that's at 9 p.m. Eastern. It goes straight till 1 a.m. So if you're on the weekends, I hope you get to tune in. Let us go to Linda, Albany, New York, WGDJ. Linda, go right ahead quickly. Oh, thank you. Um, a true story. Back in the 1800s, a young man was so jealous of people that lived in houses with windows. He got because uh, he grew up in a shack, literally with no windows. He got himself treasurer of the town. He was making it so difficult for people, the taxes per window in the house. But finally, a young man who loved his uh, relatives dearly in that town uh, was a lawyer, and he figured out that in the law that this uh, treasurer had passed, it said um, windows that you see through. So he literally had everybody paint their windows black, and that is based on a true story. Black so they could not see through it, and then they survived. Wow. That's quite the story. And, uh, you know, it's always good to hear um, these throwback stories back to the 1800s. Like, you, you, we wouldn't think of something like that today about people being jealous of a house with no windows. Uh, fascinating. As a matter of fact, uh, I, I'm always looking for a room with no windows because uh, I like to sleep during the day since I'm up really late at night. <laughs> and uh, it, it prevents me from sleeping when the sun comes into my eyes. Thank you, Linda. I appreciate it. Have a great Labor Day weekend. Uh, a big shout out to everybody on WGDJ. And let's go to Larry, Newport, North Carolina, WTKF. Go right ahead. Hey, Rich. I, I called you with, to, with a political question, but I, when you started talking about Labor Day weekend and, and all that stuff, and I started thinking about my Puerto Rican uh, Army buddy, military police buddies that I served with and all that stuff, you know, I said, well, he, he brought, and, and, and for some reason, my noodle started coming to my head, you know. I think that's love a delicacy down there. And I remember my army buddy, he cooked menudo, and I, oh, man. You know, you got to have the right palate. You know what I'm saying? But, I hear uh, that, brother. So uh, I, 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 in honor of the, the weekend and all that stuff, I, I said, let me lay off the political stuff right now and, and, and give everybody a break for the weekend. Well, that's kind of you, Larry. I appreciate it. And uh, Godspeed to you and everybody listening. Wishing everybody a wonderful Labor Day weekend. Lots of uh, rest and relaxation. If you're out there laboring, God bless you. A big shout out to everybody that's serving in uniform and those who've served before them. And hasta la próxima. Until the next time, America will be back with you on Tuesday. I really want you to enjoy as much of the weekend as you can. Keep it locked right here on this station. There's another great show following me. Until then, I'm Rich Valdez. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.